Story 2 of The Room in the Tower and Other Stories This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Room in the Tower and Other Stories by E. F. Benson The Dust Cloud The big French windows were open onto the lawn, and, dinner being over, Two or three of the party who were staying for the week at the end of August with the Coombe Martins had strolled out onto the terrace to look at the sea, over which the moon, large and low, was just rising and tracing a path of pale gold from horizon to shore, while others, less lunar of inclination, had gone in search of bridge or billiards. Coffee had come round immediately after dessert, and the end of dinner according to the delectable custom of the house, was as informal as the end of breakfast. Every one, that is to say, remained or went away, smoked, drank port, or abstained, according to his personal tastes. Thus, on this particular evening it so happened that Harry Coombe Martin and I were very soon left alone in the dining-room, because we were talking unmitigated motor-shop and the rest of the party, small wonder, were bored with it, and had left us. The shop was home-shop, so to speak, for it was almost entirely concerned with the manifold perfections of the new six-cylinder Napier, which my host, in a moment of extravagance, which he did not in the least regret, had just purchased, in which, too, he proposed to take me over to lunch at a friend's house near Hunston on the following day. He observed with legitimate pride that an early start would not be necessary, as the distance was only eighty miles and there were no police traps. Queer things these big motors are, he said, relapsing into generalities as we rose to go. Often I can scarcely believe that my new car is merely a machine. It seems to me to possess an independent life of its own. It is really much more like a thoroughbred with a wonderfully fine mouth. And the moods of a thoroughbred? I asked. No, it's got an excellent temper, I'm glad to say. It doesn't mind being checked or even stopped when it's going its best. Some of these big cars can't stand that. They get sulky. I assure you it is literally true, if they are checked too often. He paused on his way to ring the bell. Guy Elphinstone's car, for instance, he said. It was a bad-tempered brute, a violent, vicious beast of a car. What make? I asked. Twenty-five horsepower, Amadev. They are a fretful strain of car. Too thin, not enough bone, and bone is very good for the nerves. The brute liked running over a chicken or a rabbit, though perhaps it was less the car's ill temper than Guy's, poor chap. Well, he paid for it. He paid to the uttermost farthing. Did you know him? No, but surely I have heard the name. Ah, yes, he ran over a child, did he not? Yes, said Harry, and then smashed up against his own park gates. Killed, wasn't he? Oh, yes, killed instantly, and the car just a heap of splinters. There's an odd story about it, I'm told, in the village. Rather in your line. Ghosts, I asked. Yes, the ghost of his motor car. Seems almost too up-to-date, doesn't it? And what's the story? I demanded. 
Why just this? His place was outside the village of Bircham, ten miles out from Norwich, and there's a long straight bit of road there. That's where he ran over the child, and a couple of hundred yards farther on, a rather awkward turn into the park gates. Well, a month or two ago, soon after the accident, one old gaffer in the village swore he had seen a motor there coming full tilt along the road, but without a sound, and it disappeared at the lodge gates of the park, which were shut. Soon after, another said he had heard a motor whirl by him at the same place, followed by a hideous scream, but he saw nothing. The scream is rather horrible, said I. Ah, I see what you mean. I only thought of a siren. Guy had a siren on his exhaust, same as I have. His had a dreadful frightened sort of wail and always made me feel creepy. And is that all the story? I asked. That one old man thought he saw a noiseless motor and another thought he heard an invisible one. Harry flicked the ash off his cigarette into the grate. Oh dear no, he said. Half a dozen of them have seen something or heard something. It is quite a heavily authenticated yarn. Yes, and talked over and edited in the public house, I said. Well, not a man of them will go there after dark. Also, the lodgekeeper gave notice a week or two after the accident. He said he was always hearing a motor stop and hoot outside the lodge, and he was kept running out at all hours of the night to see what it was. And what was it? It wasn't anything. Simply nothing there. He thought it rather uncanny, anyhow, and threw up a good post. Besides, his wife was always hearing a child scream, and while her man toddled out to the gate, she would go and see whether the kids were all right. And the kids themselves? Ah, what of them? I asked. They kept coming to their mother, asking who the little girl was who walked up and down the road and would not speak to them or play with them. It's a many-sided story, I said. All the witnesses seem to have heard and seen different things. Yes, that is just what to my mind makes the yarn so good, he said. Personally, I don't take much stock in spooks at all. But given that there are such things as spooks, and given that the death of the child and the death of Guy have caused spooks to play about there, it seems to me a very good point that different people should be aware of different phenomena. One hears the car, another sees it, one hears the child scream, another sees the child. How does that strike you? This, I am bound to say, was a new view to me, and the more I thought of it, the more reasonable it appeared. For the vast majority of mankind have all those occult senses by which is perceived the spiritual world, which, I hold, is thick and populous around us, sealed up, as it were. In other words, the majority of mankind never hear or see a ghost at all. Is it not then very probable that of the remainder, those, in fact, to whom occult experiences have happened or can happen, few should have every sense unsealed, but that some should have the unsealed ear, others the unsealed eye, that some should be clairaudient, others clairvoyant? Yes, it strikes me as reasonable, I said. Can't you take me over there? Certainly. If you will stop till Friday, I'll take you over on Thursday. The others all go that day, so that we can get there after dark. I shook my head. I can't stop till Friday, I'm afraid, I said. I must leave on Thursday. But how about tomorrow? Can't we take it on the way to or from Hunston? No, it's thirty miles out of our way. 
Besides, to be at Virchum after dark means that we shouldn't get back here till midnight. And as host to my guests, ah, things are only heard and seen after dark, are they? I asked. That makes it so much less interesting. It is like a seance where all lights are put out. Well, the accident happened at night, he said. I don't know the rules, but that may have some bearing on it, I should think. I had one more question in the back of my mind, but I did not like to ask it. At least, I wanted information on this subject without appearing to ask for it. Neither do I know the rules of motors, I said. And I don't understand you when you say that Guy Elphinstone's machine was an irritable, cross-grained brute that liked running over chickens and rabbits. But I think you subsequently said that the irritability may have been the irritability of its owner. Did he mind being checked? It made him blind mad if it happened often, said Harry. I shall never forget a drive I had with him once. There were hay carts and perambulators every hundred yards. It was perfectly ghastly. It was like being with a madman. And when we got inside his gate, his dog came running out to meet him. He did not go an inch out of his course. It was worse than that. He went for it, just grinding his teeth with rage. I never drove with him again. He stopped a moment, guessing what might be in my mind. I say, you mustn't think, you mustn't think, he began. No, of course not, said I. Harry Coombe Martin's house stood close to the weather-eaten, sandy cliffs of the Suffolk shore, which are being incessantly gnawed away by the hunger of the insatiable sea. Pathoms deep below it, and now many hundred yards out, lies what was once the second port in England. But now, of the ancient town of Dunwich, and of its seven great churches, nothing remains but one, and that ruinous and already half destroyed by the falling cliff and the encroachments of the sea. Foot by foot, it too is disappearing, and of the graveyard which surrounded it, more than half is gone, so that from the face of the sandy cliff, on which it stands, there stick out like straws in glass, as Dante says, the bones of those who were once committed there to the kindly and stable earth. Whether it was the remembrance of this rather grim spectacle, as I had seen it that afternoon, or whether Harry's story had caused some trouble in my brain, or whether it was merely that the keen, bracing air of this place, to one who had just come from the sleepy languor of the Norfolk broads, kept me sleepless, I do not know. But, anyhow, the moment I put out my light that night and got into bed, I felt that all the footlights and gas-jets in the internal theatre of my mind sprang into flame, and that I was very vividly and alertly awake. It was in vain that I counted a hundred forwards and a hundred backwards, that I pictured to myself a flock of visionary sheep coming singly through a gap in an imaginary hedge, and tried to number their monotonous and uniform countenances, that I played knots and crosses with myself, that I marked out scores of double lawn tennis courts, for with each repetition of these supposedly soporific exercises, I only became more intensely wakeful. It was not in remote hope of sleep that I continued to repeat these weary performances long after their inefficacy was proved to the hilt, but because I was strangely unwilling in this timeless hour of the night to think about those protruding relics of humanity, 
also i quite distinctly did not desire to think about that subject with regard to which i had a few hours ago promised harry that i would not make it the subject of reflection for these reasons i continued during the black hours to practise these narcotic exercises of the mind knowing well that if i paused on the tedious treadmill my thoughts like some released spring would fly back to rather gruesome subjects i kept my mind in fact talking loud to itself so that it should not hear what other voices were saying then by degrees these absurd mental occupations became impossible my mind simply refused to occupy itself with them any longer and next moment i was thinking intently and eagerly not about the bones protruding from the gnawed section of sand cliff but about the subject i had said i would not dwell upon and like a flash it came upon me why harry had bidden me not think about it surely in order that i should not come to the same conclusion as he had come to now the whole question of haunt haunted spots haunted houses and so forth has always seemed to me to be utterly unsolved and to be neither proved nor disproved to a satisfactory degree from the earliest times certainly from the earliest known egyptian records there has been a belief that the scene of a crime is often revisited sometimes by the spirit of him who has committed it seeking rest we must suppose and finding none sometimes and more inexplicably by the spirit of his victim crying perhaps like the blood of abel for vengeance and though the stories of these village gossips in the alehouse about noiseless visions and invisible noises were all as yet unsifted and unreliable yet i could not help wondering if they such as they were pointed to something authentic and to be classed under this head of appearances but more striking than the yarns of the gaffers seemed to me the questions of the lodge-keeper's children how should children have imagined the figure of a child that would not speak to them or play with them perhaps it was a real child a sulky child yes perhaps but perhaps not then after this preliminary skirmish i found myself settling down to the question that i had said i would not think about in other words the possible origin of these phenomena interested me more than the phenomena themselves for what exactly had guy elphinstone that savage driver done had or had not the death of the child been entirely an accident a thing given he drove a motor at all outside his own control or had he irritated beyond endurance at the checks and delays of the day not pulled up when it was just possible he might have but had run over the child as he would have run over a rabbit or a hen or even his own dog and what in any case poor wretched brute must have been his thoughts in that terrible instant that intervened between the child's death and his own when a moment later he smashed into the closed gates of his own lodge was remorse his bitter despairing contrition that could hardly have been so or else surely knowing only for certain that he had knocked the child down he would have stopped he would have done his best whatever that might be to repair the irreparable harm but he had not stopped he had gone on it seemed at full speed for on the collision the car had been smashed into matchwood and steel shavings again with double force 
had this dreadful thing been a complete accident, he would have stopped. So then, most terrible question of all, had he, after making murder, rushed on to what proved to be his own death, filled with some hellish glee at what he had done? Indeed, as in the churchyard on the cliff, bones of the buried stuck starkly out into the night. The pale, tired light of earliest morning had turned the window blinds into glimmering squares before I slept, and when I woke, the servant who called me was already rattling them briskly up on their rollers and letting the calm serenity of the August day stream into the room. Through the open windows poured in sunlight and sea wind, the scent of flowers and the song of birds, and each and all were wonderfully reassuring, banishing the hooded forms that had haunted the night, and I thought of the disquietude of the dark hours as a traveller may think of the billows and tempests of the ocean over which he has safely journeyed, unable, now that they belong to the limbo of the past, to recall his qualms and tossings with any vivid uneasiness. Not without a feeling of relief, too, did I dwell on the knowledge that I was definitely not going to visit this equivocal spot. Our drive today, as Harry had said, would not take us within thirty miles of it, and tomorrow I but went to the station and away. Though a thorough-paced seeker after truth might, no doubt, have regretted that the laws of time and space did not permit him to visit Birchin after the sinister dark had fallen, and test whether for him there was visible or audible truth in the tales of the village gossips, I was conscious of no such regret. Birchin and its fables had given me a very bad night, and I was perfectly aware that I did not in the least want to go near it, though yesterday I had quite truthfully said I should like to do so. In this brightness, too, of sun and sea wind, I felt none of the malaise at my waking moments which a sleepless night usually gives me. I felt particularly well, particularly pleased to be alive, and also, as I have said, particularly content not to be going to Birchum. I was quite satisfied to leave my curiosity unsatisfied. The motor came round about eleven, and we started at once, Harry and Mrs. Morrison, a cousin of his, sitting behind at the big back seat, large enough to hold a comfortable three, and I on the left of the driver, in a sort of trance, I am not ashamed to confess it, of expectancy and delight. For this was in the early days of motors, when there was still the sense of romance and adventure around them. I did not want to drive any more than Harry wanted to, for driving, so I hold, is too absorbing. It takes the attention in too firm a grip. The mania of the true motorist is not consciously enjoyed. For the passion for motors is a taste, I had almost said a gift, as distinct and as keenly individual as the passion for music or mathematics. Those who use motors most, merely as a means of getting rapidly from one place to another, are often entirely without it, while those whom adverse circumstances over which they have no control compel to use them least may have it to a supreme degree. To those who have it, analysis of their passion is perhaps superfluous. To those who have it not, explanation is almost unintelligible. Pace, however, and the control of pace, and above all the sensuous consciousness of pace, 
is at the root of it. And pleasure in pace is common to most people, whether it be in the form of a galloping horse, or the pace of the skate hissing over smooth ice, or the pace of a free-wheel bicycle humming downhill, or, more impersonally, the pace of the smashed ball at lawn tennis, the driven ball at golf, or the low-boundary hit at cricket. But the sensuous consciousness of pace, as I have said, is needful. One might experience it seated in front of the engine of an express train, though not in a wadded, shut-windowed carriage, where the wind of movement is not felt. Then add to this rapture of the rush through riven air the knowledge that huge relentless force is controlled by a little lever, and directed by a little wheel on which the hands of the driver seem to lie so negligently. A great untamed devil has there his bridle, and he answers to it, as Harry had said, like a horse with a fine mouth. He has hunger, and thirst too, unslakeable, and greedily he laps off his soup of petrol, which turns to fire in his mouth. Electricity, the force that rends clouds asunder, and causes stars to totter, is the spoon with which he feeds himself. And as he eats, he races onward, and the road opens like torn linen in front of him. Yet how obedient, how amenable is he! For with a touch on his snaffle his speed is redoubled, or melts into thin air, so that before you know you have touched the rain, he has exchanged his swallow flight for a mere saunter through the lanes. But he ever loves to run, and knowing this, you will bid him lift up his voice and tell those who are in his path that he is coming, so that he will not need the touch that checks. Hoarse and jovial is his voice, hooting to the wayfarer, and if his hooting be not heard, he has a great guttural falsetto scream that leaps from octave to octave, and echoes from the hedges that are passing in blurred lines of hanging green. And, as you go, the romantic isolation of divers in deep seas is yours. Masked and hooded companions may be near you also, in their driving dress for this plunge through the swift tides of air. But you, like them, are alone and isolated, conscious only of the ripped ribbon of road, the two great lantern eyes of the wonderful monster that look through drooped eyelids by day, but gleam with fire by night, the two ear laps of splash boards, and the long lean bonnet in front, which is the skull and brain case of that swift, untiring energy that feeds on fire, and whirls its two tons of weight uphill and down dale, as if some new law as everlasting as gravity, and like gravity making it go ever swifter, was its sole control. For the first hour, the essence of these joys, any description of which, compared to the real thing, is but as a stagnant pond compared to the bright rushing of a mountain stream, was mine. A straight switchback road lay in front of us, and the monster plunged silently downhill, and said below his breath, Ha ha, ha ha, ha ha, as, without diminution of speed, he breasted the opposing slope. In my control were his great vocal cords, for in those days Hooter and Siren were on the driver's left, and lay convenient to the hand of him who occupied the box-seat. And it rejoiced me to let him hoot to a pony-cart, three hundred yards ahead, 
with a hand on his falsetto scream if his ordinary tones of conversation were unheard or disregarded. Then came a road crossing ours at right angles, and the dear monster seemed to say, Yes, yes, see how obedient and careful I am. I stroll with my hands in my pockets. Then again a puppy from a farmhouse staggered warlike into the road, and the monster said, Poor little chap, get home to your mother, or I'll talk to you in earnest. The poor little chap did not take the hint, so the monster slackened speed and just said, Woof! Then it chuckled to itself as the puppy scuttled into the hedge, seriously alarmed, and next moment our self-made wind screeched and whistled round us again. Napoleon, I believe, said that the power of an army lay in its feet. That is true also of the monster. There was a loud bang, and in thirty seconds we were at a standstill. The monster's off forefoot troubled it, and the chauffeur said, Yes, sir, burst. So the burst boot was taken off and a new one put on, a boot that had never been on foot before. The foot in question was held up on a jack during this operation, and the new boot laced up with the pump. This took exactly twenty-five minutes. Then the monster got his spoon going again and said, Let me run, oh, let me run, and for fifteen miles on a straight and empty road it ran. I timed the miles, but shall not produce their chronology for the benefit of a forsworn constabulary. But there were no more dithyrambics that morning. We should have reached Hunston in time for lunch. Instead, we waited to repair our fourth puncture at 1.45 p.m., 25 miles short of our destination. This fourth puncture was caused by a spicule of flint three-quarters of an inch long, sharp, it is true, but weighing perhaps two pennyweights, while we weighed two tons. It seemed an impertinence. So we lunched at a wayside inn, and during lunch the pundits held a consultation, of which the upshot was this. We had no more boots for our monster, for his off forefoot had burst once, and punctured once, thus necessitating two socks and one boot. Similarly, but more so, his off hind foot had burst twice, thus necessitating two boots and two socks. Now, there was no certain shoemaker's shop at Hunston, as far as we knew, but there was a regular universal store at King's Lynn, which was about equidistant. And, so said the chauffeur, there was something wrong with the monster's spoon, ignition. And he didn't rightly know what, and therefore it seemed the prudent part not to go to Hunston, lunch, a thing of the preterite, having been the object, but to the well-supplied King's Lynn. And we all breathed a pious hope that we might get there. Whiz, hoot, purr, the last boot held, the spoon went busily to the monster's mouth, and we just flowed into King's Lynn. The return journey, so I vaguely gathered, would be made by other roads, but personally, intoxicated with air and movement, I neither asked nor desired to know what those roads would be. This one small but rather salient fact is necessary to record here that as we waited at King's Lynn, and as we buzzed homewards afterwards, no thought of Bircham entered my mind at all. The subsequent hallucination, if hallucination it was, was not, as far as I know, self-suggested. 
that we had gone out of our way for the sake of the garage i knew and that was all harry also told me that he did not know where our road would take us the rest that follows is the baldest possible narrative of what actually occurred but it seems to me a humble student of the occult to be curious while we waited we had tea in a hotel looking onto a very big empty square of houses and after tea we waited a very long time for our monster to pick us up then the telephone from the garage inquired for the gentleman on the motor and since harry had strolled out to get a local evening paper with news of the last test match i applied ear and mouth to that elusive instrument what i heard was not encouraging the ignition had gone very wrong indeed and perhaps in an hour we should be able to start it was then about half past 6 and we were just 78 miles from dunwich harry came back soon after this and i told him what the message from the garage had been what he said was this then we shan't get back till long after dinner we might just as well have camped out to see your ghost as i have already said no notion of burcham was in my mind and i mentioned this as evidence that even if it had been harry's remark would have implied that we were not going through burcham the hour lengthened itself into an hour and a half then the monster quite well again came hooting round the corner and we got in wacker up jack said harry to the shopper the roads will be empty you had better light up at once the monster with its eyes agleam was wagged up and never in my life have i been carried so cautiously and yet so swiftly jack never took a risk or the possibility of a risk but when the road was clear and open he let the monster run just as fast as it was able its eyes made day of the road 50 yards ahead and the romance of night was fairyland round us hare started from the roadside and raced in front of us for 100 yards then just wheeled in time to avoid the ear flaps of the great triumphant brute that carried us moths flitted across struck sometimes by the lenses of its eyes and the miles peeled over our shoulders when it occurred we were going top speed and this was it quite unsensational but to us quite inexplicable unless my midnight imaginings happened to be true as i have said i was in command of the hooter and of the siren we were flying along on a straight down grade as fast as ever we could go for the engines were working though the decline was considerable then quite suddenly i saw in front of us a thick cloud of dust and knew instinctively and on the instant without thought or reasoning what that must mean evidently something going very fast or else so large a cloud could not have been raised was in front of us and going in the same direction as ourselves had it been something on the road coming to meet us we should of course have seen the vehicle first and run into the dust cloud afterwards had it again been something of low speed a horse and dog cart for instance no such dust could have been raised but as it was i knew at once that there was a motor travelling swiftly just ahead of us also that it was not going as fast as we were or we should have run into its dust much more gradually but we went into it as into a suddenly lowered curtain then i shouted to jack slow down 
and put on the brake, I shrieked. There's something just ahead of us. As I spoke, I wrought a wild concerto on the hooter, and with my right hand groped for the siren, but did not find it. Simultaneously, I heard a wild, frightened shriek, just as if I had sounded the siren myself. Jack had felt for it too, and our hands fingered each other. Then we entered the dust cloud. We slowed down with extraordinary rapidity, and still peering ahead, we went dead slow through it. I had not put on my goggles after leaving King's Lynn, and the dust stung and smarted in my eyes. It was not, therefore, a belt of fog, but real road dust. And at the moment we crept through it, I felt Harry's hands on my shoulder. There's something just ahead, he said. Look, don't you see the tail light? As a matter of fact, I did not. And, still going very slow, we came out of that dust cloud. The broad, empty road stretched in front of us. A hedge was on each side, and there was no turning either to right or left. Only on the right was a lodge, and gates which were closed. The lodge had no lights in any window. Then we came to a standstill. The air was dead calm. Not a leaf in the hedgerow trees was moving. Not a grain of dust was lifted from the road. But, behind, the dust cloud still hung in the air and stopped dead short at the closed lodge gates. We had moved very slowly for the last hundred yards. It was difficult to suppose that it was a far-making. Then Jack spoke with a curious crack in his voice. It must have been a motor, sir, he said. But where is it? I had no reply to this. And from behind, another voice. Harry's voice spoke. For the moment I did not recognize it, for it was strained and faltering. Did you open the siren? he asked. It didn't sound like our siren. It sounded like... like... I didn't open the siren, said I. Then we went on again. Soon we came to scattered lights in houses by the wayside. What's this place? I asked Jack. Bircham, sir said he. End of the Dust Cloud Recording by Shruti Sinha, Lucknow